Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a groundbreaking filmmaker and author whose output has assured her place in the new canon of horror auteurs. In film, she explored the intersection of ghosts and gothic romance with her feature, Soulmate, and served as the creator and one of the primary producers and filmmakers of the celebrated anthology, Tales of Halloween. Recently, she took a trip to Greendale to serve as one of the writers on Netflix's newest pop culture phenomenon, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and she's poised to release her latest book, The Fright Fest Guide to Ghost Movies. Please welcome prolific and sensational filmmaker, author, and so much more, Axel Carolyn. Hi. That's such a nice introduction. Thank you. Oh, well, you, you did it, it all. So you should <laughs> write my biography. This is so cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, I'm excited to have you here, and we might as well just kick off the festivities. And I'm going to start the show by asking you the same first question that I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why do you connect with horror? Why do you think horror connects with people? What's the appeal? But why horror? Okay, I, I knew this question was coming, and yet I have not prepared at all. Um, but I, I know that I started being interested in the dark side of things when I was a kid, when I was very little. I remember seeing the that animated short from Disney, the the skeleton dance with all those little oh, yeah. you know skeletons celebrating in the graveyard, and I was fascinating. And that for for me was like that's what I can trace back um, my interest in in darker stuff. Like I was fascinated by skeletons. I loved ghosts, anything that was a little bit spooky. But then when I was growing up, I couldn't watch any. I could barely watch movies, generally speaking. Like my my family wouldn't let me watch a lot of TV. But um, but I was obsessed with someday watching horror movies mm-hmm. and I would look at the TV magazines and I would like cut out the pictures of any horror film that would come out and, and all those pictures that would kind of strike my imagination and I would save them and then I would imagine what oh my god this Hellraiser thing what is that and then I would have my own idea in my head of what the hell that would be and I don't know why it's always been so fascinating and I think growing up I kind of figured that one of the reasons I'm so interested in all things supernatural and all things horror is probably because I don't don't have any kind of faith and it's just a way of connecting with like something greater than us something that exists on the other side something that you know I don't believe in ghosts but if I did it would make me think there's an afterlife and that's very comforting in a way that's interesting because as you say that and I think about uh, some of your your filmography and your writing a lot of ghosts kind of intersection mm-hmm. so uh, there is sort of an interest in the other side whether it exists or not for sure yeah I love I mean ghosts are definitely my favorite subgenre so I know that that's that's very connected to I find that comforting I again I would rather run the risk of having an evil spirit ha- haunting my house than thinking that there's absolutely nothing else and I, I find that too depressing in a way you know, I have never really like been afraid of the idea of a ghost in my house. I just always assume the ghost is going to be more scared of me than <laughs> than vice versa. Uh, but no, that's really that's an interesting take. Now you uh, you're from Belgium, mm-hmm. uh, and you talked about like seeing Hellraiser uh, in magazines or like looking at the the, the movies magazines. Um, what what is the the genre world of Belgium like? Is it all American imports or? Uh, it's pretty much, yeah. It was very much influenced by... I mean, the culture in Belgium is very strange because it's a country that's, for one thing, is split between um, the Dutch-speaking side and the French-speaking side. So the culture is not the same on both sides of the country, even though it's such a tiny little place. And the French-speaking side that I grew up in is influenced by France, and then everything else is like from England or from America. So it's a culture that's not really 
Belgian in in a way. There's some horror films from Belgium, but they're more recent. Like I love Calvaire, um, also known as The Ordeal. That's one of my favorites. There's one called Cub by this guy called Jonas Kovarts, who is really cool. Um, there's a few like Daughters of Darkness is a big one. All that's right. Belgian, and that's that's pretty awesome. Which would have uh, great interest to Dead for Filth listeners because, mm-hmm. of course, it is uh, about lesbian vampires, mm-hmm. uh, which we're big fans of here. Uh, I am interested by the idea of a country that sort of has two identities. I, I think there's something about that because you could probably feel very much like an outsider in your own country at times. I definitely did, yeah. And I, it's odd because I, so I lived in Belgium. I grew up in Belgium and then I left when I was studying. I went to England and I spent nine years in London before I moved here. And so I've always felt like I'm kind of stuck between different cultures. I always have this kind of joke that I can't do a pop culture quiz on a specific culture anywhere. If I went back to Belgium, I have no idea, no idea what the pop culture is in Belgium. I just, I've been out of touch for so many years, but I'm also, I've never felt very British. And I haven't grown up here, so I've always right. felt like it's kind of in the middle of a bunch of different places. Well, I think this begs an interesting question. And, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about uh, on this show is sort of the draw to horror when you have kind of a sense of outsiderness or otherness. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about how uh, you've always felt like you're outside of the culture or wherever you are for all of these reasons. Do you think that there is some place where that also leads to your interest in, in horror because... It is sort of the genre of of those of us who exist on the outside. I don't know if it was being out of touch with the culture as much as it was just being out of touch with the people around me in school specifically. Like mm-hmm. I know that I was definitely a loner from the moment that I started school. I did not get on with other kids. I was always kind of, I like drawing and writing and doing my own stuff. And so if, during recess, I would just go and read a book and then other kids would find that weird and would wonder why I'm not playing. And I just, I don't know. And I also, I went to an all-girls school, but I had uh, my closest sibling was a brother and we always played with like G.I. Joes and, and toys that were more kind of traditionally boy stuff. And if I brought that kind of stuff in school, they'd be like, why are you playing with this? This is stupid. This is just... And they were cool because they were like monsters and things like that. There were those toys called the sectors that I remember loving. They were kind of like those creatures or half insect and half human or half alien. And I, I brought one of those to school and I still remember the kids being like, why would you play with something so stupid? Uh, yeah, so I've always felt kind of on the outside on that. And it is interesting uh, that just the idea of gendering toys. Like, well, that's a boy so toy. Yeah. Well, and we hear this all the time in the genre, too. And I was just talking about this uh, a couple weeks ago when Tiffany Shepis was on about the idea when you're really into horror, there's always that kind, there are, is sort of an old guard of people like girls don't like horror, mm-hmm. which is so absurd. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I'm sure you have dealt with. Uh, yeah, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and a few years ago, it would help you stand out in some ways. Like this is definitely something that I know has in small ways served me is that if, if you're the one person who's not a dude, stand out in the room for sure. So right. so people remember you a little bit more easily. Does that mean that it helped me fa- find work or get movies made? Definitely not. For sure. Not. <laughs> but, but it helps you kind of be, when I was writing for Fangoria, for example, people knew me in conventions because they kind of knew, oh, that's the one girl at the time who works for Fango. There might have been a couple of others, but like definitely in Europe or in that side of the world, that was the one. And uh, and it's kind of fun. Yeah. But it's I, I agree that idea of gender toys, I could talk about it for hours. It's so dumb. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, because a toy doesn't have gender. It's what you assign to it. So that's really ridiculous. I have this great photo from um, when I was about 
six and my brother was about like four and it's Christmas or St. Nicholas as we have it in, in Belgium mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm playing with my space gun and I have this space outfit and he just got a little um, set of cleaning tools and he's having fun like using the little vacuum and it's just it's such a great photo because my parents just didn't care they, they, they would just let you play with whatever they, you thought was cool see I love that I remember when I was a kid my parents had these friends who uh, had uh, one of those like little toy kitchens for their daughter mm -hmm. or something whenever I went over there I was just like I love this and I'm like the other boys were like, why do you want to play with the kitchen? I'm like, everybody eats Steve. <laughs> like, you know, they're like, I was like really into the idea of like, I'm going to make bread. And <laughs> the idea that like that wasn't something boys did was just so like it didn't I didn't understand it. So I love uh, the idea of you in a space costume because I relate. You wanted to go to space and I just wanted to bake croissants. <laughs> <laughs> look at us now. <laughs> yeah, look at us now. Um, so you uh, didn't necessarily get to interact with uh, movies, maybe as much as you would have liked as a child, but you had this fascination with monster movies, and you mm -hmm. said you kind of looked through the magazines and waited to watch them on TV. Uh, do you remember the moment where you're like, wow, this is for me? Like you're watching a movie, and it's like more than just... I'm enjoying this. I kind of want to make this something I do. Strangely, that would be Aladdin. Aladdin? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> so not a horror movie at all. I remember seeing Aladdin and just like that blew my mind. I just, I have, can't really explain it. It was Aladdin and Nightmare Before Christmas were two films I was totally obsessed with. And I started buying, they had the making of book. So I started studying like behind the scenes. I was drawing the genie. I was redrawing everything I could find and, and trying to learn to draw. And I wanted to be, I wanted to go to CalArts and be an animator for Disney. And then realized that's not a great plan. But in the process, I kind of discovered Tim Burton movies. And I got obsessed with that. And I was obsessed with, I for a long time, I was obsessed with watching Edward Scissorhands, which my parents would not let me watch because they thought it looked disgusting. Aww. They just, they looked at the cover and they were like, that looks just too scary. You can't watch that. And um, and then I watched it with my grandma in the end, who thought it was lovely. And it is. Um, yeah, and I, I was I was kind of, I discovered Nightmare Before Christmas. I discovered stop motion animation. I started being obsessed with that. And then, and that kind of evolved into filmmaking, generally speaking. So you pretty much knew that you wanted to go into filmmaking from your interest of these, mm -hmm. but you kind of veered into it via a world of journalism, if I'm not mistaken, right? Did you I start did, yeah. writing? So you started writing about film before you were making films. So I... Yeah, so I, I went through a detour where I was studying. I went to law school because, again, because my parents, growing up in Belgium, I had no way of easily getting into movies, saying you wanted to be a filmmaker. It was not really an option. It was such right. a hard thing to do. And they came from a very classical background, and they wanted me to have a good backup plan. So they basically gave me the choice, like, you can go to medicine, uh, to medical school or you can go to law school. So I took the easy road of going to law school. Ah, uh, the easy road, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Medical school just <laughs> like a nightmare. Um, although very interesting, but I would have been pretty bad at it. Um, but yes, while I was doing that, I started writing scripts for myself just for the hell of seeing what it was all about. And by that point, I'd already discovered the world of, like, by that point, I was obviously watching all the movies I wanted. So I discovered Reanimator, which totally blew my mind and made me want to make my own movies and uh the fly which is still to this day my favorite movie discovered around the same time i was obsessed with it 
And uh, so that was always in the back of my mind as I was going through all those years of studying as kind of this is what I want to do. And sure enough, when I, I started going on message boards, and at the time it was like Ryan Turek, who's now at Blumhouse, was on one of those message boards. And there was this great film festival in Brussels. And I told him I was going there. And he was like, do you mind doing some interviews for the website? And so I did that. And then later on, meeting people through the festival, I, I think I met Brian Usna who invited me to visit a set that he was shooting in, in Spain for a movie he was shooting in Spain because I'd never been on set and I told him I want to be a filmmaker and he said why don't you come down and when I did he said well no one else is going to be writing about this for Fangoria because no one's visited to in Spain so would you like to do that since you've done some work for some websites right and that's how I started writing for Fango and then I went and covered the hostel movies and the Hills of Eyes movies and Morocco and and I got to travel the world a little bit and kind of see all those well, because at the time, Fangoria didn't really have international correspondence. They had a couple. They had Alan Jones in London. Okay. They had maybe a couple of others. But yeah, it's, it's kind of, if Alan wasn't going someplace, then I would be going. And, and I got to go to, like I said, I got to go to Prague for Hostel twice. I got to go to Morocco twice. I got to go to Finland for the, the Lordy movie. It was just, it was really fun. It was a really fun time. And how, how long did you do that? A few years, I think. Yeah. And then I decided that I was going to try to make my own stuff and and it was an awkward place to be kind of reviewing movies or writing about movies and at the same time trying to make your own stuff. Right. So I ended that with writing my first nonfiction book, which was called It Lives Again. And that was like two thousand eight, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and that was supposed to be my swan song to to journalism. And I I have uh notes about It Lives Again, uh horror movies in the new millennium. Mm-hmm. And it Tell me about that. You're writing a book. Here's this thing that was probably, as a child, sort of forbidden almost, the idea that these horror movies were out of your reach. And then from there, you're on the set of movies made by people who are heroes in in the genre. And then you get to write a book about it. Like, this probably, to young you growing up, not being allowed to watch these movies, seems... Seemed like it would have been impossible. Well, I feel like the <clears throat> the thing that allowed me to transition into that was there was this festival in Brussels and also a festival in London that I started going to a little bit later, uh, Fright Fest. And the one in Brussels is called Biff. And I would go every year and they would always have guests who'd made movies that I loved and I would get the chance to go and talk to them. Mm-hmm. And from the moment that I got to do interviews, like my first, the first person I ever interviewed was Stuart Gordon, who'd done Reanimator, which again, was like one of my favorite movies at the time. And after the interview, he's like, well, I'm going to go have lunch now. Do you want to join? I'm like, oh my God, I get to hang out with Stuart Gordon. This is so great. And that happened a bunch of times because it was so unusual, I guess, for them to travel internationally and meet someone who was pretty young and knew their stuff so much. And kind of because at that point I was already steeped in like I would watch three, four movies a day to make up for the time that I had lost. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I I got to meet a lot of my heroes and it was wonderful and got to ask a lot of questions and try to understand how the world of filmmaking worked and how you get to make your first movies. And and I didn't necessarily know I wanted to write and direct, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to take any opportunity to be on set. And I remember at the time telling Stuart, like, if I could be an extra in a horror movie someday, I could just go be a lawyer and be happy. Like I would have, I would have made it. And little would I know that I'd be actually making my own films and living here and just, you know, this kind of a dream come true for that. I love that. It's just such a, a journey of dreams kind of being achieved along the way. And so you you mentioned uh, how it lives again for you is sort of like the swan song to your your journalism mm-hmm. era. And so in your mind at this time, you're also starting to gear up for making your own things. 
more or less? Because like you said, you weren't yet sure that you wanted to write or direct. What was the pivot point? Like you wanted to start making your own stuff, but how did you know that you wanted to write and direct? Well, I was always writing in any case. Right. I, I optioned, I got my first script optioned in my early 20s when I was still in law school um, by a Belgian company, actually, which years later would put money into Soulmate. So that's kind of funny, my first feature. And um, yeah, I, I I think the thing that really allowed me, I had ideas for short films. I'd made some short films in the past. And then I, I went briefly into acting, which was, you know, again, it was kind of taking any opportunity to work. So I did some work as a, I worked as in film PR because that's what journalism led to for a while. And right. then I was, I temped for a while in film financing company. I thought I would get it to production at some point. I did some special effects makeup, like any opportunity I would get to learn something new, I would just go and do. And when I was acting, I wasn't very satisfied with the work I was doing. Like, it's just not my thing. I'm just, I'm not very good at it and it's not creatively satisfying. So I wrote more than ever and I wrote what became the story for Soulmate. And I just kind of wrote it thinking, well, if nothing else, I'll I'll act in it and I'll get someone else to make it. And for a while, that was kind of what we were going to be doing. And I just felt like the story was too personal for me to leave it to someone else. And I decided to go and direct it. And that would be my first feature. And it was a long process to get it made and it was not easy in any kind of way. But that was kind of, that was the decisive, that was the the, the factor that meant that, okay, now this is going to be my thing. It was really feeling like this story was too personal to leave it to someone else. And that has to be exhilarating, you know, at, at that long journey wearing all of these hats to finally be like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. It is. Yeah. It really had that feeling. Really did. Um, and and I was supposed to direct that feature, and then it collapsed like two weeks before shooting, which was heartbreaking because we had a good budget, we had a great star, we had everything was going well, and then they just didn't um, cash flow it properly, so it just collapsed. And at that point, I took a little bit of time, not wanting to talk about movies or <laughs> think about movies in any kind of way. And then suddenly, I was like, you know what? I have this short story I've written that I've always wanted to make as a short film, and I'm just gonna go and make it. And I made a couple of short films that year that did really well in festivals and and directing them those were the first that were kind of professionally directed professionally right. made with a crew of professionals and cast of professionals um as opposed to all the stuff that I'd done for nothing before that and um yeah and I remember being on set of my first short film and just thinking this is what I'm supposed to be doing and it's such a great feeling because I'd never had that feeling before and it just felt like it was we were shooting in a hospital and I've always been very OCD and didn't like the idea of touching anything and that day I just didn't even think about it it just felt so natural I was like I'm directing this is great well I I like that you uh had to kind of go through a lot of different roles before you got there because one thing that I like to talk to uh, filmmakers who have worn many hats before they they get to the place of directing their own film is how crucial it was to them to have tried all of that. Like you say, acting wasn't necessarily your thing, but I bet you gained things from your experiences mm-hmm. acting that you can now communicate with actors It on. helps a lot, yeah. And do you think that that's really an important thing for independent filmmakers and emerging filmmakers to try out different roles on film? just to I think so and I think that also it's very unusual that you would be given the opportunity to direct straight out the door like right. the second that you decide I'm going to be a director of course you can go and do your own stuff but no one's really going to give you money right away so right. it's likely that you'll have opportunities to do something else and I just feel like if you're close to if you close yourself off to those opportunities you're going to miss out on a lot of 
learning and a lot of fun and a lot of really good experiences generally. And I also feel like writing and directing get better with time to a point at least. You have to have lived a little bit to yes. have stories to tell, I think. And sure enough, you can you can have a fresh perspective and fresh point of view, but it's better if you've had some life experience behind you, I think. Well, I think that kind of speaks to the impact of Soulmate when you made it, because it's uh, a ghost story, yes. I mentioned it's also a gothic romance, but there's a lot of layers of, of personal emotion in that movie mm-hmm. that I think it it's both genre but also transcendent of genre and and a lot of people in the festival circuit took note of that fact and i think that when you said uh that you had originally thought someone else would direct it watching it you had to direct that movie because that's that's your story like you can you you're i can see hearing what you're saying now in this interview and thinking back on the film all that experience and all that you know the things that you live through you put that into the screen and mm-hmm. i think that's why people respond to work after you have sort of been through the trenches uh you know just the universal you if that makes sense thank you yeah totally and it was there's a lot of ideas in there that felt incredibly personal there's that idea you know confronting your own mortality and Mm -hmm. the fact that people around you are going to die and again that's I know every child goes through that phase where you realize it's going to happen but I remember very clearly being very little I must have been under seven because it was in the first house that my family lived in and I would stay awake all night just thinking I'm going to get old my mom's going to get old. I'm going to see that or I'm going to see her die. And neither of that is good. And I would just stay awake all the time just saying, how do I deal with this? And this movie in many ways kind of deals with that. It's a woman who's lost the love of her life and she doesn't know how to cope and she just doesn't know how to move on. And I think that I'm sure a lot of people can um, sympathize with that. But to me, that was the biggest fear I had at the time was just something it had been an obsession and again going back to why horror i feel like this is one of the ways that you exercise that fear is just thinking about death because i was obsessed with how do i cope with that reality well i think it's interesting too because we were talking about uh at the top of the show sort of that engagement with the the thrill of horror and you know it's sort of like the outrageousness and why it engages us but i i think also horror has this power and i say it a lot uh, where we can sort of get released through the mechanism of of whatever it is, the ghost, the monster, the otherness, uh, that other forms of storytelling don't always allow us uh, to have. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I think that, you know, there's there's obviously the entertainment element and there's the fun element, but when it's something like this, where horror can delve into the realm of otherness and you're talking about death and mortality you're able to like really like tangibly put those issues in front of an audience and and people while watching a ghost story can think to themselves i've i've felt this or i've been through this and uh, i think a lot of times when the world at large is critical of this genre it it neglects the fact that there's a lot of catharsis in it as well yeah, and you can do that without making it depressing. Or right. I mean, you can't <laughs> make it depressing right. too. But you can also, it, it's not going to be on the nose and it's not going to be, you know, you can talk about issues that are very poignant without necessarily addressing them head on. Right. So it doesn't feel like, you can get your message through, but it doesn't feel like you're kind of, yeah, out there to depress people or to just hammer them with this message. And I also, I mean, it maybe it's just my experience, but I also feel like a lot of people in horror, because we get it all out in the genre, 
we're usually well more adjusted than a lot of people. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, I just feel like we purge our demons well through art. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'd, I'd like to hope that like someone's on the Internet right now. Like, well, Michael, I've got some news for you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, from from Soulmate hitting the festival circuit, uh, it did very well. Uh, and y- is that you made that while you were still in Europe, right? I was. Yes, I was. I shot it in Wales. I was still in London at the time. And what was that? The success of that movie, the impetus to move here. Well, the success is a big term. It did actually okay in the UK too. It was right. a little bit lost in the the release in the US. They mm. didn't. The distributors did nothing to advertise for it, or like the release was nothing. And they put it on Netflix the day that they released the DVD, which is a decision I've never understood. Yeah. But fine. There's, but in 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 the UK, it did pretty well, and it was weirdly helped by the fact that it was censored, which is insane. <laughs> Because um, this is this little gothic romance that's very mild, and yet somehow the the BBFC out there, which is the the ratings board, decided that if I didn't cut out, I think sixteen seconds out of it, they would ban the film in the UK, which is crazy. Because right. like I was talking about the hostel movies, they never had to make any cuts. Like Martyrs didn't have to have any cuts, but this movie had to have sixteen seconds cut out of it. That's wild. In a way, it's a badge of honor in the world of genre, I totally too. look at yeah. it as such, yes. At the same time, it gives completely the wrong idea of what this movie is. And even even though I cut out all that, I cut out the entire opening sequence, actually, in the UK, it's still a 15 certificate, so no one under 15 is allowed to watch it, which is crazy, because I would show this to kids. It's just, it's, I mean, kids. Yeah. They would be bored to death. But, um, you know, it's just, it's not that kind of movie at all. It's not right. gory in any kind of way. If you go in thinking, my God, it's going to be, it was almost banned, can you believe? You're going to be so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, but it was after Soulmate that you moved here. I moved here, yes. I, but actually I moved here because I'd visited LA years before that and I completely fell in love with the place and I met so many wonderful people Mm -hmm. and this great horror community and I felt very accepted there and I felt in the way that I'd never felt anywhere. Like London has a lot of people who love horror, but I've never felt like there was such a circle of people who hang out together and have fun together and just go to whatever screening you're going to, you're always going to bump into people you you know and there's, there's such an energy here for that and such an appetite for it. And I, um, I'd wanted to move here since pretty much since the time that I that I first visited and I kept visiting three, four times a year and it took that time to get the visa. Well, speaking of the horror community valet, uh, your next big feature project really was a community effort, mm-hmm. but it begins with you and that's Tales of Halloween. Uh, this was an idea that you had, but you sort of rallied the troops. and It was very much that. It was like, I want to celebrate the fact that there's so many cool people here and we all love the same thing and we were all passionate about Halloween, about horror, mm-hmm. and behind the scenes, but also in, in front of the camera and in so many different capacities. And I thought it'd be great to do something together. And that's an idea that I'd had for a long time, but didn't really realize that an anthology movie could be the solution for that. Right. And that kind of crystallized when I figured, let's do an anthology, let's do it about Halloween, because this is this really symbolizes our love for horror. And let's do this very simple concept of stories that take place on the same night in the same town. Why 10? It's a huge amount of movies because there are so many friends and we just, it felt bad anytime we had to leave someone out. And um, yeah, I wish I could have had 20 directors on that, but that would have been a nightmare. Like That was hard enough well, I mean, to wrangle. But There could always be a sequel. 
Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, my question: If is there ever going to be? Uh, is that something you've ever thought about? A sequel? It's something we've definitely thought about. It's um, it's unlikely to happen. I right. would say. I feel like we're very lucky that we're still all friends at the end of the process <laughs> because at the end of the day you're still working and it's very right. it's a very all-consuming process as everybody who's made a movie knows right. and and for me and for Mike Mendez we were the main two creative producer on that we had to kind of wrangle everybody and had to um, give script script notes and help them with the budget and all kinds of things that you usually those are the positions where you have a producer who says that to you and you feel like they're on the other side of the table. Right. And it's very hard to do when it's your friends. friends. And so the fact that we've all survived and we all love each other still is kind of, it's very, it's more valuable to me than making another sequel and putting that under stress again. Well, it's true. Making movie, as you said, is very stressful. Uh, and anthologies are definitely an a added measure of mm -hmm. uh, stress, having made an anthology movie myself, because it, it, it is multiple movies under the banner of one. It feels like you're shooting, we shot 10 features. It basically felt like because it's just different crews every time and it's different locations and it feels like you're making 10 movies in two months and it's just, it was hard. And I feel like sometimes you feel, no, that would be easy. It's like putting a succession of short films together, but it's not. It no. was very, very much scheduled like a feature. It was very intense to do. And I have to ask, I, I, I rewatched it at the top of October, uh, and I love, I love Tales of Halloween. I think there's just something new to discover every time I watch it. One of the things I really like is you're telling the story about meeting all of these heroes of yours when mm -hmm. you were uh, doing the journalism beat in Europe. And, and Stuart Gordon's and Stuart, in the episode. Yeah, yes. Stuart Gordon's in the one that you directed. <laughs> that has to be like a cool f full circle moment it as well. It was just yeah. great. It was awesome. And it also, the fact that it's a Halloween party that they're at, that's the thing that I, I should probably point out is that for all my bitching about how hard the filming was right. it's also a huge amount of fun and it's something that I look back on I think we all look back on as just this amazing time where we got to work with our friends and then go and promote it with our friends and and we all had the same project and the success that we had was ours all together and but yeah I remember that night we were shooting that Halloween party and I'm friends with Stuart now and I'm friends with Mick Garris and, and, and Lynn Shea and like all those amazing people and I remember setting a shot we're discussing the shots with the dp jen michael losada and uh and then i turn around and i see them all in costume and all the candles are lit and it just looks like it's halloween night and i felt like this was just it felt like you show up at, a, at the best halloween party it's the best oh uh, now i have to ask uh is halloween a big thing in belgium not at all See, that's I wanted to know because I uh, when I've been talking about different things in the world of horror and we are lucky with Dead for Filth, we have something of an international listenership. And I've had a lot of people from other uh, countries uh, ask, well, like, what, what what's candy corn like? Or like, we don't really dress up here. Like, we're so jealous. And uh, I just think I've taken for granted the American sort of like all in on Halloween. Mm -hmm. Um so that's just really interesting that like it's just not a thing. Not there. at all. I, I learned about Halloween because I remember seeing ads for Halloween 3 or one of the sequels. Right. And I, I just remember seeing the pictures of the of the pumpkin and thinking, this is weird. What is that? What does Halloween mean? And actually, when I first saw John Carpenter's Halloween, it was called The Night of the Masks in French. And it Michael Myers is called Michel Meyer, <laughs> and in the beginning, there's the one that you have the 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 scroll that says Halloween Haddonfield. It there's a voiceover that says 
Halloween, the night before All Saints Day. <laughs> like I said, generally explained because no one knew what the hell Halloween was. Wow, that's so interesting. I, I guess I've just always assumed it was uh, a bigger thing. That's that's I guess. No, my... it's, it's I I started discovering Halloween, and then when I understood, oh my god, is this celebration of horror? It was maybe seven or eight. I was obsessed with it, and I wanted to celebrate Halloween with my family. We couldn't find any costumes. We couldn't find any pumpkins. The only thing that my mom found was like a quarter of a pumpkin that's kind of pre-cut, so you can use it for soup. Oh, so no. that's the only thing that she could buy me. So I cut out a little face out of my quarter pumpkin. <laughs> it was very cute. Which is funny because, uh, you know, now when I think of filmmakers who have put their stamp on Halloween, you're one of them. Like, And I, <laughs> and when I, uh, I uh, even just like knowing you personally, you do, you have like one of the best decorated homes. I've seen some of your costumes are always great. Thank you. You, uh, you really embody the spirit of Halloween. So you took back the night, honestly. I love Halloween. And I, and I even when I was in Belgium, I would have my own Halloween parties. And, and the first few years, it was just me and my family like I would decorate the attic and, <laughs> and play the Ghostbusters theme and that was it and cut out my, my quarter pumpkin but uh, as a teenager I would have I would have Halloween parties too and it was funny because my dad was always a little bit reluctant he would always make fun of this this pagan holiday it's pagan it's American it's you know you're not supposed to celebrate something that's not our tradition and every single time he would just reluctantly leave and go in his office and just be like okay fine celebrate your pagan holiday and and then halfway through the night, he would, we'd see this mysterious, we'd hear footsteps come down the stairs. And then this mysterious silhouette would walk in and it would be my dad wearing one of his masks. He was an um, um, archaeologist and history of art professor. So he had all those weird masks that he brought back from various places. And he would just wear the mask and look at people and not say a word. And then at the end of the night, he would take off the mask and he'd usually wear something kind of like a, a pantyhose on his head or something <laughs> that would deform his features. He was just the spookiest and it was awesome because for all his talk, he would embrace it the most. I love that. So he was like secretly into it, but, yeah, but totally. not so secretly yeah. into yeah. it. That's amazing. Uh, no, I, I really love the idea that you're just like, yeah, I'm going to have my own. Halloween party. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you played the Ghostbusters theme. Yes. Uh, I recently saw, um, I don't know how long ago you did it, but I saw that you did a trailer from hell for the Ghostbusters. Uh, I did, yes. So are you a big Ghostbusters enthusiast? I. It was one of my favorite movies growing up because once again, I couldn't watch horror movies. So this was the closest that I got to see a watch movie that had ghosts in it and it had the, the taxi driver, you know, the, the, the kind of decomposed corpse who drives. Right. Oh my God, he was the best. So yeah, I and it's one of the ways I learned English actually it was that I, I was so obsessed with Ghostbusters and with English culture in general that I wanted to learn the language and I um, I bought the VHS tape of Ghostbusters in English subtitled in English and so I could because I knew it in French well enough I could listen to it and read and kind of try to understand what the words were and some could argue it didn't work that well. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's one of the ways I learned the language. I kind of love the idea of learning English via Ghostbusters. Yes, because it's the strangest thing. Yeah. <laughs> It was uh, what Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis wrote the script, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So thanks, Dan and Harold, for helping Axel out <laughs> you know, on this journey. I, oh my God, that's amazing. Um, I. Uh, <laughs> 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 it's totally like now just thinking about how awesome that is. So 
Tales of Halloween, uh, you have this this grand anthology that you make with all your friends. Uh, I I really think it embodies the holiday and that kind of celebratory spirit. Uh, like I said, I watched it this year. It's a, a staple of my lineup. And then um, from uh, Tales of Halloween in a town where all of these things happen on Halloween night, you also recently worked on a show about a town where every day feels a little bit yes. like Halloween. Uh, and you uh, you just did some writing for Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So tell me a little bit about How that. Cool this is that? a <laughs> pop culture phenomenon. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh... So, so after Tales of Halloween, I, I wrote a whole bunch of stuff that hasn't been made yet. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, will get made at some point soon. But uh, and and I also did some writing for hire, and you know, I kind of mostly wrote. Um, I'm dying to direct again, by the way. And I this opportunity came up because I think because I wrote a pilot that was sent to the production company and then they liked it and they kept me in mind when Sabrina came up and I just had a call one day and just said can you meet Roberto the showrunner tomorrow mm-hmm. and I met him and an hour later they said you start on Monday so that was my <laughs> that was how I got into a writer's room that's a great way to get a job <laughs> that's pretty amazing any, anyone who works in uh, writing and in Hollywood knows it doesn't always happen like that oh no so no, no I was so lucky so incredibly lucky and so incredibly lucky to end up on this show with these talented people with a subject matter that's so close to everything I love. It's right. just, I could not believe it. I would <clears throat> go to work every day and kind of pinch myself and just be, I get paid to go and talk about witches and the devil and just work with all those incredible people. And just that it was, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. And it definitely feels very much in your wheelhouse uh, totally. aesthetically, especially because when you consider the Melissa Joan Hart version of Sabrina, <laughs> as opposed to this version of Sabrina, there's sort of like a world of difference. Yeah. There's one I could definitely see myself working on and one a little bit less. Sure. Uh, so how has it been just watching, you know, because when you're in a writer's room, even though you can conceptualize, yes, this is going to be on Netflix and yes, there is a pop culture behemoth behind it, Archie Comics. And of course, Sabrina has legs in the world, but it's it's a whole lot different from then when that drops and mm-hmm. then everyone on your Twitter timeline is like, well, I'm more of an Aunt Hilda or I'm an Aunt Zelda or blah, blah, blah. You know, that's got to be kind of overwhelming and cool to witness. It felt like, to be honest, I kind of expected it because it's also in the same universe as Riverdale and the office was shared with Riverdale and we see what that success is all the time. Right. So I wasn't taken by surprise by it. But yes, it's I, I was on the phone with my mom driving down Cahuenga when I first first saw the first billboard and I screamed on the phone I'm like, Mom, I have to stop the car and go take a photo. There's a giant billboard of Sabrina. <laughs> uh, so I have to ask, just because I mentioned the ants, um, personality-wise, which ant are you more like? I think I'm Zelda. Yeah, I'm probably yeah. Zelda. I'd like too. to think I'm Hilda, but no, I'm totally Zelda. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I I I think I jive with with Zelda as well. Um, <laughs> I get it. So uh, I can see you as a Madam Satan. Me? Yeah. You know, I took the BuzzFeed quiz, and they said that I was Madam Satan as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look like the nicest, and then you kind of scheme behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's me. Um, oh, you know what? Honestly, I'll take it. You heard it here first, Ed for Filth listeners, from a writer on Sabrina. <laughs> I, I will take my Madam Satan crown and and retire into the night. Uh, so from Sabrina comes out, we've got this this pop culture thing that is just like a big moment in October. And now this month in November, you've got a book coming out. I do. Yes. Thank God, because it would feel very suddenly very empty when Halloween and Sabrina are suddenly kind of in the past. I mean, Sabrina, we're still... 
I still see feedback every day, which is great. But yeah, I'm sure that billboard's gone. It's a little bit sad. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I, I'm still seeing her her witchy candles around town, so <laughs> not quite done. But so this book, uh, the uh, Fright Fest Guide to Ghost Movies. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Obviously, you love ghosts. We talked it. We yes. talked a little bit about uh, and Soulmate. I love Fright Fest, which is that festival I mentioned in right. London that I started attending. Um, when I first started studying in London and I've been going for many, many years and they're just fantastic people. And I, they started releasing those books. So Alan Jones, who used to write for Fango, um, wrote the first book. He also runs, um, he's one of the organizers of Fright Fest and he wrote the first book, which was the Fright Fest Guide to Exploitation Movies. And then Michael Gengold from Fangoria wrote the second one the following year, which was about monster movies. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, I was like, I need to write the ghost one. So I went and I pitched myself to, obviously they knew me, but I I kind of pitched, we should do one on ghosts and, and they loved the idea. And thankfully, let me play with it. So it's um, it's 200 movies that represent the most significant ghost movies around the world since the beginning of cinema. And of course, we want people to buy the book. So no major spoilers. But because ghost movies seem to be something that you really love. Mm-hmm. What are a few ghost movies that you just think are the absolute like this is in my DNA. These are my ghost movies. Okay, this is hard because it changes a lot. But I would always mention The Haunting, okay. for sure. By the way, The Haunting of Hill House is phenomenal on Netflix. <sighs> phenomenal. Next level. I don't level. know how they, yeah, it's just brilliant. Uh, I love The Devil's Backbone. I love The Legend of Hell House. I love, oh my God, there's so many. Just, <laughs> it's so hard and it changes so much. This year, I loved Ghost Stories. That's cool. I loved Ghost Stories. Uh, I uh, I definitely had a few moments in the theater. It's rare to get me to jump, and they got me in that one a few times. Uh, so I really, uh, that's cool. These are all great recommendations. Mm-hmm. You can't go wrong with a good ghost story. And uh, I love knowing that you're so passionate about ghost movies. I mean, enough to write a book. Uh, so is there anything else that uh, listeners should know about this book before it comes out? It's... um. It's out in the UK right now. It's coming out. I think we're going to have a signing at Dark Delicacies November 24th, I think. Mm -hmm. So that will be kind of the way to launch it here in L.A. Um, It's meant to be something you can just kind of dip in and out and just kind of check. I'm in the mood for something from the 60s or from something from the 80s and just kind of look at it. It's beautifully illustrated. It's um, like the the publisher did such a great job illustrating the whole book and sourcing all kinds of photos for some films are pretty rare in there. And there's some films that I found very hard to find. And um, yeah, and I'm hoping that people will find out stuff about the movies that they love that they didn't know before. But also mostly, I hope that they'll find stuff that they haven't heard of yet. There's definitely a bunch of, even though I love ghosts, there's a whole bunch in there that I'd never seen or never even heard of and that I discovered thanks to this book. So I'm was very grateful for that. And it was a great year of just every morning I would wake up and I'd watch a movie before breakfast. And by breakfast, I would have written my little capsule review of the movie. And uh, yeah, it was just, just so much fun. I love that. That's a good way. That's part of your balanced breakfast. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Do you feel now uh, when you have breakfast and you don't have a ghost movie a little less complete? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so one thing I wanted to talk about, because uh, we, 
you know, obviously we're talking about your love of ghost movies, uh, but you and I also share uh, a love of a particular film studio and having you on the oh, show, yes. I can't d- not discuss it. Uh, you are a big fan of Hammer. I am. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you had done some film publici- publicity work uh, in your career. And one of the things that you actually worked on was Hammer's <laughs> yes, re- return. Uh, after they had been dormant for a really long time, they did this it was a series for MySpace, I think it was, right? Yes, it was a web series called Beyond the Rave. Right. Yeah, and I, um, I heard about it, and then I noticed that they didn't have much presence online. Mm-hmm. And I got in touch with them, and I said, can I help in any way? Since at the time, I knew every website that specialized in horror. I knew every magazine, so I just kind of... Just said, look, guys, I can I can send some I can write a press release and I can send that to all the, the the horror sites and all that kind of side of things. And you can handle mainstream press if you feel like it, but I can at least do this. And they they said yes, and it was it was really fun to do. And it was very simple. And um, yeah, and I remained friends with the director, for example, Matthias, who's great. And uh, it was fun little experience. And really cool to see where they went after that, like how it grew from this MySpace series to doing the woman in black and just, yeah. Yeah, because they were they were shut down for a, a while. And then they came back with that. And, and uh, we're now in the modern era of Hammer. But one of the things that we've bonded over in our conversations is just sort of our love of the classic Hammer mm-hmm. uh, catalog, the Draculas and the Frankensteins, the, the Cushing and the Lee of it all. Um, do you have any particular Hammer standouts that are your favorites? I love Curse of Frankenstein. I know this is not the most original answer, but yes, Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, um, Dracula AD 72. Love it. Um, I rewatched Kiss of the Vampire recently, and I thought that was really good. And funnily, I watched it on the double bill with Fearless Vampire Killers. And I thought that's a great alternative to Fearless Vampire Killers. Actually, I like it better. I really, really like Kiss of the Vampire. Mm-hmm. I think that there's something really fun about it when the bats are all flying through mm-hmm. the, the, the window. Uh, I am really happy that you mentioned Dracula 80, 1972, um, because rarely in cinema history will you get disco dancing, <laughs> Satanists, and Christopher Lee all in the same movie. Uh and honestly, I think the one thing that we were denied was a Johnny Alucard movie. <laughs> it, it should have happened after that. Um, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a fan of of Dracula's like 1970s. I foray. just love the weirdness of it. I just I just love that they went for that. Well, same because there seems to be this moment where you can see Hammer being like, "Well, we've kind of done everything we can in the Gothic era. Mm-hmm. Let's let's take him to the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then Satanic Rites happens afterwards where I'm still... Less excited about that. Less excited. I'm, I'm not really still sure what it's about. I know Dracula runs a corporation, which I guess maybe in today's world is the truly sinister deed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just knew I couldn't have you on and not bring up Hammer because I think that there's a, a Hammer sensibility to a lot of your work. I think you, you like their aesthetic. Yeah. I just love the, the visuals, yes. I wish I could make a movie that looks half that good. Yeah, I, I just... I, the, the 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 Eastman color that they use was just so beautiful, and again the Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, all those ones are that's one of the things I like the most is how they look. It's just incredible. Horror of Dracula is when you rewatch it now is takes twists and turns that you don't expect and that are very modern. Mm-hmm. I find. Uh and there's something there's a sensuality to Hammer movies that mm-hmm. I think is always understated that no one ever talks about. And I'm going to ask you a question because we talked about this a long time ago uh, bef- when we first talked about having you come on the show. Uh, is something that you were uh, 
always interested in watching horror movies that uh, you said that you had a, an interesting fixation on that you wanted the boys in horror movies to kiss. You told me this once. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember saying it, but that sounds like me. Yes, totally. <laughs> yeah, because I remember telling you uh, about the show and you're like, wow, I, you know, one of the things that I was always interested in and watching these gothic movies, like I hoped the boys would kiss. And I was just like very... I can't remember what movie I was thinking of because I, I know we were talking about something specific and because I, I remember watching something and there's two guys who until then you think are totally straight and they end up, oh my God, yes, it's... Uh, no, they're not totally straight. It's uh, Penny Dreadful. Oh, and it's when Dorian Gray seduces one of the one of the characters who, until then, you think is straight, and it was like, oh my god, this is the best. <laughs> yes, it's it's personal favorite of mine. I just love that. I uh, you know I love the um just the blurring of lines that horror allows. It's great because it feels like I mean, it shouldn't feel like it, but it still feels like a bit of a taboo, and it feels like. It, it's almost a little bit provocative mm-hmm. and it's always, you know, you reveal something about someone that you didn't know existed and, and it's kind of like seeing inside someone's psyche in some ways. And I don't know. I find it very exciting. Well, and I think that that's interesting about the taboo because you're right. It shouldn't be taboo. But it, horror allows us to kind of push those boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I think it just kind of goes back around to the conversation we had earlier about how we can use genre to tell stories that the mainstream still not letting us tell. Um, whether it be queer stories or stories told by women or people of color, it just uh, feels like um, we're we're still out there fighting against the the bigger. I think that this is slowly but surely getting slightly better. I yes. mean, I'm I'm in perhaps the wrong position to completely. I I wrote a story that was about a lesbian couple a couple of years ago, and I remember at the time my. Um, my manager at the time, which is not the same as today, told me, you should write about normal everyday people. And I'm like, I did. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, not everybody can identify to a lesbian couple. And I was very shocked by that. Right. And uh, But the thing is, she kind of had a point, which was that studios look for the most easily relatable from middle America. Right. Which would mean people would be straight, people would be white, people would be middle class. And it just, the moment you deviate from that, it makes it harder to sell. While nowadays, I feel like if you go into a studio, thanks to things like Get Out and and things that are a little bit more out of the box, if you come in and you say, well, I have this great story and the characters are different from what we're used to seeing and they represent people and they give a voice to people who have not had a voice until now, I think people are kind of actually excited about that. I I think they absolutely are excited about it because what happens when that argument comes up, the idea that you write a story about lesbians and that someone's like, well, no one can relate to this. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking as an LGBTQ person, I grew up my whole life watching movies about people who were not me, and I still found things to relate to to the characters. But also you don't define characters purely by this one characteristic I wrote it and I'm not lesbian and I could identify with those people entirely and I it's possibly the best I haven't written a ton of love stories but this is perhaps the best romance that I felt I'd written it was the two characters I felt were the most in sync and I really like that well and I think it's because you understand there's more of a human experience than just like minor defining features and there's there's a myopic viewpoint that the audience only wants to interact with characters that are just like them. Mm-hmm. Whereas to me, that's kind of the most uninteresting sort of storytelling. I want to read stories and hear stories that take me somewhere new. Exactly. 
Or, you know, if it's going to represent me, at least do it right. That's how I... And, I, and yeah. help you kind of understand other points of view, too. Right. I, I should probably bring up that Sabrina was great for that because it's it's the most diverse room I'm aware of. It was wonderful. Um, and we got to play with a lot of diversity on the show, too. And, and sometimes, sometimes it's difficult because you feel like you never know who's it's going to offend one way or another, but you just kind of, you go with it because it's right. it's important to have representation and especially in a show that's about witches, which are historically always have been kind of the others and, yeah. and, and treated differently because, you know, if someone was a little bit weird, you would call them witches or you would kind of put them in medieval time. They would kind of be put in that box. And, and, and the idea that nowadays we would have to make a show that's just all about like straight white people and, and they're called witches would be right. out of place, I feel. Well, I think that that's such brilliant insight because I, I recently was asked uh, for an article about why gay men love witches. And I said, it was like, well, it, they make sense to mm -hmm. us because witches of yesteryear Year were definitely persecuted by one underlying misogyny, not underlying, overlying, all over the place misogyny, because it was just the mere idea that the patriarchy couldn't stand the idea that women may have agency or autonomy over themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so they clearly must be in league with the devil. Like, how dare she actually be an independent person? She must be a witch. And when uh, society puts you in a box because you're not living or conforming the way they want you to, that's something a lot of us can uh, can identify with. And I do think that uh, the new Sabrina handles that very well because it felt decidedly like you tackled a lot of issues in that show that not everyone's tackling yet. So, Well, one of the things that was really interesting was that it was reflected, again, in the writer's room mm -hmm. and in the way that the, 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 the cast and crew was kind of um, selected. And it was, um, you know, you don't write about trans characters without anybody who's got that experience you need to have someone who has that voice right and and in the same way you had you know different sexual orientations and, and different races and everybody's represented and it feels like instead of being a bunch of straight white guys kind of writing for women or writing for lgbtq you have people who have that experience and have that voice kind of right you know give their insights into it now when you mentioned this uh, love story that you wrote, the lesbian love story, mm -hmm. and uh, just talking about different sorts of storytelling and representation and stories, uh, one of the things that I uh, haven't touched on and I want to talk about before we head off into the night, uh, in addition to writing for film and doing journalism work, you've written some short stories that have been published as well. I have, yes. Uh, and when you're writing a, a piece... How do you, for yourself as a writer, decide, well, this is a prose piece or this is a screenplay or does it just kind of naturally happen? Yeah, that's easy. I don't, I don't write uh, prose anymore. I, I used to do that before I started um, being a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I feel like I could go back to it. But really, right now, I want to focus on doing stuff visually. But it, it felt like there's something sometimes that you feel you can't... It's going to be really hard to put on screen. Most of the stories that I wrote were... Um, period set or would have been very expensive or sometimes are just kind of it's always short stories so they're very they have a very brief point that wouldn't necessarily could make a short film but then if you make short film that's supposed to be set in like the 15th century it's really hard to finance right. that kind of thing but yeah I, I loved I, I got obsessed at some point with the history of London I was obsessed with the plague I was obsessed with like witches and, and all kinds of 
the, the dark side of the history of London and of the UK. And I wrote a bunch of stories that were set around that and a bunch of them got published, which was really cool. Well, I uh, I think that there is definitely a... I hope that I get to see you make a period piece movie at some point. That would because, be great. Um, speaking of movies, what have you seen recently that you like or that inspires you? What What is... Uh, what's on the the watch list well again ghost stories would be very high on that list uh hereditary i guess everybody's seen it by now but it was fantastic um funnily i hated it when it came out of the theater hated it i was so upset by the whole experience <laughs> but i couldn't it just wouldn't leave my mind and then i realized that's that's what that's the strength of something like this right. that's what true horror is really fantastic i watched first reformed a couple of days ago and i thought that was really powerful and really that really touched me um, I should make a list of those things. I do make a list of those things. I have letterboxed, but <laughs> yeah, I'm very bad at remembering what I've seen. Uh, Hill House, again, Haunting of Hill House. One of the most fantastic things I've seen so far. So I'm going to watch it a second time very soon. I really liked Hill House. I can see why Hill House would uh, speak to you, especially because of your interest in ghosts, but it also de deals with grief in such mm -hmm. a powerful way. It does. Uh, I was talking to someone recently that I think that the truly haunting thing about the show is just how people interact with each other. Mm -hmm. It's not even the ghosts. It's just like everyone in some degree has a dysfunctional family, hopefully not as dysfunctional as that family. But I think that's the true haunting of that show. And he captured it so well. I, yes. Yeah. And the way they all reacted in different ways. And it, it was, yes, it was fantastic. And funnily, I find that's something that's very true about Hereditary too, which mm -hmm. has scary moments. But to me, what was the most affecting was just the way that the characters reacted to what happened to them. And just the fact that some people can't cope with what's going on is just, that was so, I, I, after I watched it, I woke up at night and I couldn't help thinking, oh my God, that kid doesn't know how to deal with this. <laughs> that was really shocking. Well, you know, what's interesting, and I just am now kind of thinking this through, is that horror, of course, always has trends. You know, uh, we, we see usually whatever is going on in society is reflected in our genre material in some capacity, whether it's you know the argument of God versus science while Mary Shelley's writing Frankenstein, Godzilla and the A-bomb, or even just the torture that was in the news when Hostel and Saw came out. And we seem to have a very uh, big spike in horror that represents uh, coping with trauma right now. Mm -hmm. And I mean, people out in the world can take into, a, you know, like whatever inference that that may be, but it's just really interesting that right now a lot of our horror is very quiet and internal. Like there's trauma in all horror, but like something like Hereditary or Hill House, it's very, of very much on our kind of consciousness at the moment. That's very true. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I hope we I hope we all get back to a happy place. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, so beyond the book coming out this month, uh, what else are you working on that you can tell us about? Um, that I can tell you about, not much. I have a bunch of scripts that I'm currently trying to. Um, that are out there in the world mm -hmm. um, trying to get made. I have one that's for feature, um, definitely represents a slice of the population that we don't see much in film or in horror, so I'm excited about that. But that's that's what makes it challenging, but also kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I have a TV show that I'd love to get made. Um, yeah, a couple of other things are kind of circulating right now and, and looking for the right time to emerge on the scene well fingers crossed i i want to see all of the things from you i love your work <laughs> thank you uh axel where can people find you 
I'm on Twitter and on Instagram. And I don't know my handle, but I, I'm sure if you type Axel Carolyn, there's not that many. Um, yeah, so mostly Twitter and Instagram, I think. I don't use Facebook anymore very much. Fair. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking to me about all of your work and the things that you're doing. Uh, please check out Axel's movies, Soulmate, Tales of Halloween. Also check out Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix. And her book is coming out this month, The Guide to Ghost Movies. You should buy it and read it and go on a ghosty journey as guided <laughs> by this amazing filmmaker. So thank you, thank you, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, this has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. <laughs>